That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice. Believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Shabbat Shalom, Juma Mubarak, whatever it may be for you. It's the end of the week for us. How and when will schools get back freedom of speech? Young people are testifying before Congress right now, and it's pretty shocking. Also, new poll shows that over 65% of Americans back Roe v. Wade. Is this going to help Democrats in November? We'll talk about that. And also... CPAC is happening over in Budapest in Hungary right now. Why is the Republican Party taking 2024 marching orders from a foreign dictator, specifically Viktor Orban? Also, could another recession cause us to rethink Keynesian economics, or is it going to cause the Democrats to lose? Or will it pass in time for 2024? It's probably going to have an impact in 2022. What, what do you think that will be? I'll share some thoughts with you. And Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear is going to be with us. They're planning on releasing a whole other batch of nuclear water off the coast of Japan from Fukushima. What's that going to do to the fish coming to the United States? But to start the program off, freedom of speech is under attack in our public schools. Students and teachers uh, testified before the U.S. House of Representatives that they're right to talk about race, their right to talk about LGBTQ issues in public schools and, and, and politics generally is being silenced due to an onslaught of new state laws. Uh, James Whitfield, a former principal in Texas, said to be crystal clear, this is about disrupting and destroying public education. Teenagers from Texas, Michigan, and Ohio told House lawmakers that the constant attacks from right-wing advocacy groups and the lack of support from school administrative officials. This is from uh, Ariana Figueroa writing over at jerseymonitor.com. Uh, are taking a toll on their mental health and affecting their education. Uh, Ellie Calden of Dallas County, Texas said teachers are being vilified. Since January of last year, 42 states have introduced legislation or other measures to restrict the teaching of critical race theory, discussion of race, or discussion of sexism in the classrooms. And this doesn't even get into sex education stuff. We're talking about sexism. In other words, male dominance. Claire Mengel of Hamilton County, Ohio, told members of the House of Representatives about how their school's diversity day was canceled. Now, this was an optional event. It required parental uh, consent to attend. But they canceled it anyway because... Holy cow, we can't let, you know, speakers from different cultures and backgrounds speak up. Amazing. She said that they discovered that the newest school board members ran on a platform opposed to critical race theory. And once they got into power in the school board, they canceled the diversity day event. And she said, our event is not even about critical race theory. It's, it's not even about gay issues. It's about diversity. Um, you know, she said the school brought politics, the school board brought politics into our schools when they attacked our event. Their actions have harmed our education, our mental health, and our community. It's starting to bite. These laws that have gotten so much publicity over the last year or so, they're starting to bite. And they're starting to damage our schools and our children, which, of course, is the goal. 
These people, by and large, Republicans don't even believe in public education. They think all education should be private. It should be paid for by families or by charity. And so, you know, the, well, you say, well, but poor people can't go to school. That's the point. Maintain an uneducated underclass who will be cheap labor for the giant corporations that own the Republican Party. It's, it's really that simple. New polling on Roe v. Wade, two-thirds of Americans back Roe less li- and, and are less likely to vote for uh, Republicans who are, or for political candidates who are opposed to abortion. Uh, the Henry, Henry Cuellar uh, race down in Texas is going to be a real interesting indi- indicator of this. Uh, it's a Democratic primary, but he's the last Democrat. Well, actually, there's one more that just got elected um, who is an opponent of, bo- of abortion rights in the United States. But two-thirds, this was a brand-new Quinnipiac poll. And a year ago, or in November of last year, about six months ago, they did a similar poll. 63% of Americans in that poll uh, half a year ago said that they want Roe v. Wade to remain the law of the land or for Congress to make it the law of the land because they think it's, that's the appropriate way to deal with abortion. Before a baby is viable, it's up to the woman and her doctor. After a baby is viable, it's up to the state, basically. Well, the newest survey, after all this falderall around, you know, the leak of of Alito and everything else, the newest survey shows that that 63% who support Roe v. Wade has gone up to 65% of Americans. Nonetheless, 13 states have triggers, so-called trigger laws, which will immediately outlaw abortion. 23 states have other laws that will limit access to abortion. Seven in ten households support limits on how long a sitting justice can sit on the Supreme Court now. This is 69 to 72, the survey, the polling, the Quinnipiac polling. People are really seriously upset with the Supreme Court. And uh, it's right across all parties. Even Republicans, 61 to 36 percent, say the Supreme Court needs to be, shall we say, recalibrated. Among Democrats, it's 77 to 18 percent. Quite quite a little bit different. And also, the stock market is falling, or has, has been <laughs> fairly steadily falling. In fact, let me just check the, uh, oh, the S&P is up a little bit. The Dow is down a half a point. So I guess it's kind of bounced back from this morning. The NASDAQ is up a little bit, a little less than a point. But uh, it's been a rout, shall we say. Uh, the market was down uh, broadly. The S&P was down 19.5% earlier today. At 20%, when it goes down 20%, that's an official bear market. And you know, there's we've we've talked many times on this program about what is causing this. We've got the supply chain issues coming out of China. We've got the bounce back. This is this is the inflation part of it. Uh, you've got the bounce back from what's going on with uh, COVID. You know, the, the the recovery from the COVID pandemic. Um, I think the most important thing, though, that is driving the recession that we are entering right now, and make no mistake about it, we are entering a recession, is the Fed raising interest rates. The Fed had lowered interest rates back after the uh, George W. Bush crash in 2008 and had pretty much kept them that way for, what, 12 years now, 14 years. And what happens with an economy, and, and again, I'm, I'm not an economist, but uh, you know, common sense here, um, is that when things are a certain way for a long time, everything kind of stabilizes around that. Buyers' expectations, people's use of credit, uh, you know, home buying and selling, um, the, the, uh, it just basically all of our economic activity tends to normalize or stabilize around what the new economic reality is, both short-term and long-term, but long-term in particular. And we've had incredibly low interest rates for, for nearly a generation now. And because inflation was kicking up and directly caused by, number one, Saudi Arabia refusing to increase oil production and the war in Ukraine cutting Russian oil production, So the price of oil is up. Oil, of course, affects the price of everything because things are transported with oil. Things are manufactured with oil. Uh, So number one, you've got that. Number two, you've got, as I said, the the return of pent-up, you know, pre-COVID demand. And number three, you've got supply chain issues because China 
uh, didn't vaccinate their entire population, and now they're shutting down their ports to try to stop the spread of COVID, which I think is going to be a fool's errand. And so, you know, we're seeing shortages. And then number four, and this has not yet started to bite, but all this hysteria around, uh, and, and, and I don't mean hysteria to minimize it or, or to, to joke about it, it's, it's serious. There's concern, let's say concern instead. All this concern around the baby formula uh, situation that virtually every Republican in the House of Representatives just voted not to appropriate 20 some odd million dollars, $28 million, I believe it is, to provide young families with baby formula. All the Democrats voted, yes, let's do that. All the Republicans said no. Just like all the Republicans voted no on you know, allowing the Department of Homeland Security to communicate with other intelligence agencies about white supremacist violence in the United States. John Thune, the senator, the Republican senator from South Dakota, just came out and said, eh, it's not going to pass in the Senate. Forget it. We're, we're, we're good with white supremacist violence. Are you kidding? They're Republicans. Anyhow, uh, so we've got all, I, forgive the uh, digression there. So we've got all this stuff that is kind of hitting at once. It's a, a perfect economic storm. And then to make things even worse, you've got the Fed coming and saying, oh, and by the way, we're going to induce a recession by lowering interest rates. So what is this going to do? I think that we're in for, a, over the short period of time, a really rough time here. Now, the good news, I suppose, is that, generally speaking, recessions don't last more than 18 to 24 months. In fact, very often they last the, you know, 12 months or less. So we may well be out of this in time for 2024. That is certainly what happened to, to Ronald Reagan. I mean, he had the worst, worst recession since the Great Depression, uh, you know, after he lowered in, uh, taxes radically, and then the economy bounced back. The economy, you know, economies tend to bounce back. You can't stop them. But right now, there are some really big flags. The, uh, the first one is uh, the more subprime borrowers. These are people who are paying somewhat higher interest rates because their credit score sucks. Um, people who buy houses and buy cars, they're, they're, they're referred to in the industry as subprime borrowers. The, the number of them, the percentage of them that are more than 60 days late has been steadily increasing now for the last month or two. And that should cause us, this is according to Equifax, that should cause us to sit up and take notice. That's a, that's a huge early indicator of what will then become a crash in both the housing market and the, and the, and the automobile market which are major drivers of the economy. Then Moody Analytics just weighed in. Uh, recession risks are high, uncomfortably high and rising, said the chief e economist of Moody Analytics, quote, for the economy to navigate without suffering a downturn, we need some very deft policymaking from the Fed and a bit of luck. Well, good luck on that. You've got a bunch of Republicans running the Fed and, you know, hey, if the economy goes in the tank, that, <laughs> that works to their benefit. Lloyd Blankfein, the uh, former chairman uh, or former CEO of uh, Goldman Sachs, just came out and said there's a very, very high risk of a severe recession. The Wells Fargo uh, president, Charlie Scharf, the CEO of Wells Fargo, just said, quote, there's no question, end quote, that the economy is heading into a recession. Ben Bernanke, who used to be the head of the Fed, came out and said, yeah, we are poised for stagflation. Now, that's where you have inflation combined with a recession, which is the worst of all worlds. This stuff is political poison. Let's be very clear about this. Republicans are gleeful right now. New house construction slowed in April, the last month for which we have numbers. That's, that's a, a sign that the housing market is, get, is getting soft. And um, last month, mortgage demand, those numbers are a little more current, uh, the number of people getting mortgages is down right now. So everybody's always talking about how hot, you know, rip-roaring hot the, the real estate market is. I'm telling you, if you're planning on selling a house, do it today. Because this market is going soft in a hurry. And, of course, the thing that really drove the market down this week was Walmart showing, you know, a drop in sales and a substantial drop in profits. 
Their stock dropped 11%. This was the worst one-day loss in 35 years. Goldman Sachs says their second quarter economic growth is, is going to be 2.5% annually. That follows an unexpected contraction in the first three months of this year when the economy actually shrank 1.4%. And yet the Fed is still talking about, okay, the economy shrank 1.4% in the first quarter, but we're still going to make things worse. So what do we do? I mean, Netflix is announcing layoffs. Amazon just came out and said that they're overstaffed. Now, that might be part of their efforts to destroy unions, but frankly, I doubt it. So what do we do? How do you know what? Where does this where does this go? What does this mean? Well, uh, frankly, number one, you know, if you're young, don't worry about it. The market will rebound. You know, just and and this I don't mean to be offering in, in investment advice. I'm terrible at that. But basically, that's Warren Buffett is I was saying that right now. <laughs> On the other hand, you know, if, if you are in need of cash or you're older and retiring, might be a good time to be in cash as much as possible. But I think the, the, the political consequences of this are really where we need to be paying attention. The Democrats need to get the message out that a large part of this inflation is caused by oil prices, which you can point, point the finger at Saudi Arabia for, and Donald Trump cutting the deal with Saudi Arabia. And again, if, if the tables were turned, if Barack Obama had cut a deal with Saudi Arabia to reduce oil supplies by two and a half million barrels a day, and it was causing a, an increase in oil prices during the first years of the Trump administration, you can bet Donald Trump would have the words Barack Obama in every single sentence that involved the price of oil. Democrats need to do that, number one. Number two, we've got uh, the Economic Policy Institute, epi.org, uh, I think is their website, um, but you could just Google, you know, Economic Policy Institute has done some just great work showing that the majority of the driver of today's inflation, the majority of it, the, the most of what is driving inflation is corporations increasing prices to increase profits because they can, because of monopoly. We need to start talking about breaking up big monopolies. Another, you know, great talking point for Democrats, put Republicans on the defensive. Are you really a fan of monopolies? Do you really want, you know, basically two companies controlling most of the internet market in the United States? Do you really want four companies that control the entire baby food market in the United States or baby formula, et cetera? I think that there is a possibility to to play this politically, but the Democrats need to get smart about it. And you do, you and I do too. This is the Tom Hartman program. So spread the word and get ready. Batten down the hatches. Bobby in La Puente, California. Hey, Bobby, what's on your mind today? Well, boy, they got blood on their hands, don't they? GOP to start off with. Okay. Anyway. The reason I called uh, Thursday, you had a guest, Mankiewicz, speaking on uh, prescriptions, opiates, uh, benzos. Yeah, Mo Moskowitz, okay. yeah. Yes, and that topic hit me because I was on those things for 40 years. Wow. Thorazine, Librium, Valium, Tricine, Anavan, Clonopan. You can do a rap song. Wow. And I wasn't aware because I grew up with trauma. Mm. You know, whole family traumatized. You know, it's another story, family tragedy. So out of that, self-medication. What yeah. kept me going, Tom, was sports. When that was taken away from high school, I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. If it wasn't for alcohol, you remember Red Devils? A friend of mine, take these, Bob, and it relieved the anxiety panic. You're talking about the old uh, barbiturates? Yes, yeah, the Red the... Devils, <laughs> yeah, in Red Mountain Wine. Yeah. So that led me to a path to where I had a dependent on, you know, these uh, benzos. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I maybe I committed suicide. So but how'd you get off all this story. stuff, Bobby? I got off them. I detoxed at home by the grace of the Creator and a nurse. I love nurses. Eleanor from a 12-step 
I'm going through this. Okay, you're going to not sleep. You're going to have fish hooks in your stomach. Your your bones are being crushed. You're not going to sleep. Hallucinate. I went through it, mm-hmm. and I survived it. Right. And again, I, I took a hiatus, and then later on, I didn't. I had bad psychiatrist, Clonopin, the worst thing I ever went through. Seven days, no sleep. I thought I was going to go crazy, and uh, that was it. Yeah. I, I was lost. Yeah. yeah, I was in the 12-step program, couldn't sleep, Ambien, Ambien, hooked on it, and then somebody on your show, thank God for your show, was a documentary. I went south, I was having disassociation experiences, and it was getting crazy, so ayahuasca, I had, they called Abergane, mm-hmm. something called Toad. It was amazing, because I'd never experienced a spiritual I didn't believe agnostic this medicine. Wow, it gives me goosebumps. Yeah. Love, I didn't know what love was. None of that stuff. Hate, you know. I didn't like living this way because it led me to a path. So, open up. so psychedelics helped you kick kick the drugs. In addition to in just way, telling yourself, "I'll get through this," uh, you know, I will. There will be a light on the other side. Well, I went through hell. Be prior to the, the, the you know, the. Hallucinogenics. Like I was dealing with PTSD symptoms. I wasn't right. even aware. It's like they come in waves. You're not. Ex- Why am I feeling this? Why am I? And you get scared. Yeah. I was scared of people, places, and things. And by the grace of the Creator, your show led me to a path, and I believe it helped me. It you know made me aware. I've been off uh, opiates for about ten years. Okay, the benzos were the hard things to get off, Tom. Twice I could have died, you know, and the latest one, the clonopins. And again, I survived. And uh, in a way, humbled me. And somehow your show, I can't speak enough of it. It led me to a good path. So, Tom, I thank you for that. And there's hope out there. Tony, they called in. There is a path. Yeah, Yeah, there is hope. There is hope. There are ways through this. Bobby, thank you. I'm a miracle. There I'm you a go. miracle. So thank you, Tom. Yeah, good talking to you, Bobby. Thank you. Wow, what a testimony. Ziggy in Oneata, New York. Hey, Ziggy, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I want to talk about the populism of free speech. And um, you, mean, ago, you mean free speech, the concept, or free speech television, the network? Oh, no, no, yeah, the concept, not the okay. network. I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I guess that would be confusing. I hadn't thought of it that way. Uh, Thanks for the question. It's all okay. good, but since um, you're watching me on the t- on Free Speech Television Network, I yeah, thought maybe yeah, that yeah. had something to do with it. Okay, go ahead, Ziggy. No, no, my, my brain is so much further away from that, but thanks. That's a good question. Um, a week ago, a friend of mine asked me, how can both sides be populist? And I now realize that I gave him a half-wrong answer. Because uh, the more I think about it, um, the other side is using free speech in a populist way, but they don't mean it as populism. Right. Ever since Reagan, the the Republican Party has been lying about what their intentions are, what their goals are, and and thus being pretend populists when, in fact, they are actual neo-fascists. Yes, exactly. And I guess I'm coming to the same conclusion because uh, it was, like I said, a week ago when I was asked that question, and I realized now I gave a half-wrong answer because I said, oh, both sides can be. And, you know, it's like you learn, don't ever say both sides can be. (laughs) It really doesn't work that way. But, you know, it also brings me to one other point I wanted to bring along the line on this. And questioning now whether we should consider regulating language, not free speech, but language. Because um, we already do. I know you're going to say. I know. Well, what there, I mean are, there is, are certain uh, words you can't say on the air. There are certain you yeah, know, things you can't yeah, advocate but, for. Yeah, I realize that, but uh, I think the other side is going much further down that slippery slope already, and we may have to. I think we just need to remove the uh, the Section 230 provisions that say that you cannot hold social media companies accountable for what happens on their platforms. Uh, you know, you can, oh, yes. you know, if, if the Washington Post published an article that said, you know, go out tomorrow and assassinate so-and-so and so-and-so gets assassinated, Washington Post would get their ass sued. But if that happens yeah. on Facebook or if it happens on Twitter, there, there actually is a law preventing any kind of liability, and they, which is one of the reasons why there's, you know, these hundreds and hundreds of 
hardcore right-wing groups on Facebook, and I'm not sure that they have the, the analog of that on Twitter, but also on a whole bunch of other social media. This isn't just a single out Facebook. It's a systemic problem, but I think that's the way to do it. Ziggy, thanks for the call. Casey in West Palm Beach, Florida. Hey, Casey, what's on your mind today? How you doing, Tom? Long Good. time. It's good to hear from you, buddy. Thank you. Let me take you off speaker. Hold on. Um, you know, my, my thing is, you know, I you know, mean, you've gone around and around in the past when I was, you know, Dem exit and I f finally voted for Hillary and this other stuff. But the, I got to be honest with you, man, the Democrat Party will not leave off the baton to the newer Democratic generation. You know what I'm saying? I think it's happening in a big way right now. I'm, well, I'm seeing a lot of young Democrats getting elected who are very progressive. And it's not just the right. squad. I mean, you know, look at the average age of people in the progressive caucus in the in the Democratic Party. It's probably in the high 40s. Well, let's look, let's look at Ron DeSantis. Even though he's the stuff he's passing isn't good stuff, he's at least given his base the meat that they want. Why isn't Democrats give us the, the the meat that we want? Because you, there's you know not enough. Saying? There's not enough progressive Democrats yet. The problem is that the Democratic Party took a neoliberal turn along with the Republican Party back in the 80s. Um, took it in a big way in the 90s with the Clinton administration. And now you've got, you know, a, a good, a sizable chunk of the Democratic Party that is, uh, in order to get reelected every two years, is uh, in, in the House anyway, is completely beholden to particular industries, whether it's like Kurt Schrader and Big Pharma or, uh, you know, uh, somebody who's the insurance industry. I, you know, like Joe, Joe Lieberman used to be the insurance industry. I'm not sure who is now, but... Um, and, and, you know, it's, it, we're going to have to shake this stuff out. We're going to have to clean it out. But right now, there's not enough progressive Democrats to, to do the kind of we're going to do the will of the base stuff that uh, DeSantis has been able to do in, in Florida because he's got, you know, the, he's got the, the, the state. I mean, you got, the, the Republican Party has gone through the, the, the transformation. It's become it's no longer just a, a middle of the road party. But, you know, Americans, the thing is, though, you're independent Americans that don't, aren't engaged with politics and all this other stuff. That's not what they're, you know, the thing is that they want results. So how are the independent Americans going to, you know, vote for the Democrats when, first of all, our message isn't getting across? I mean, we, you know, it's like, I understand we're not a perfect, you know, uh, party. You know, but the Tea Party hijacked the Republican Party. Now you got the MAGA movement. We have to hijack the Democratic Party. A third party is not going to work because it's going to split the vote. Now it's yeah. going to be still business. You're singing my song. You're absolutely singing my song. And, I, and it's why we all need to get involved. It's why we need to be supporting progressive candidates. And where appropriate in, in primaries, we need to be supporting progressive candidates because, you know, I mean, you know, Joe Biden figured this out. He came when before Joe Biden became president. He was Mister in the middle. He was Mister. I'm from Delaware. I'm the guy who you know supports banks and insurance companies. I mean, he was Mister in the middle, and he came into office and he looked around and he said, "The the American people want stuff done, and we haven't been doing it for the better part of 30 or 40 years, and they want it done now, and so I'm going to do it." And and he came up with Build Back Better. I mean, basically, Bernie wrote the legislation. The problem was we've got two Democrats. The cinema and mansion, who are who are dancing with the billionaires and the right wing corporations. We need more progressive Democrats. Joe or Casey, excuse me. That that's really what it comes down to. And and until we get that, you know, we're we're hanging out in the wilderness here. Tom in Huntington Beach, California. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi. How you doing, Tom? Good. Um, listen, I just found out that uh, Benjamin Franklin was very much an abortion advocate. He wrote a book in 1727 called The Poor Planter's Reader, which had things that every family should know, all kinds of herbal remedies, the alphabet, simple math, the seasons, planting, things like that. And what's amazing is Leto, in his opinion, said abortion has little or no traditions in America. So apparently his clerks didn't even find this book. Right. Ben Franklin's book, by the way, has uh, how to do an abortion. I mean, it's mostly herbs Correct. and things that are good for abortions. But, yes, you're absolutely Correct. right. It was called The Suppression of the Cessation of the Courses. Yes. And the courses yeah. being menstruation, yeah. Uh, yeah. The suppression so, of the end of menstruation, which is a euphemism for pregnancy. Right. Exactly. So for Leto to say... I, it's like he was whitewashing it. He's, He's a Republican. He doesn't have to tell the truth. 
They're not going to hold yeah. him to account for lying through his teeth, even as a, in a Supreme Court decision. You know, Scalia well, did the same thing with the Heller decision on guns. He, he, he found some obscure tract from the, from the 17, 1770s from an anti-federalist guy who didn't want the Constitution to pass uh, doing a rant about guns. And that, that became the basis of the Heller decision. I mean, you know, you're expecting rationality or, or coherency from these guys, Tom? Ah. I hear you. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks a lot for calling and pointing that out, though. I, you know, I mentioned it the other day, but it, it really deserves to be highlighted. Ben Franklin, the only president of the United States who was never president of the United States, to quote the Fireside Theater, wrote a book about how to do abortions in the 1700s. Yes, indeed. More stories to talk about, more news. CPAC, this is amazing. The, the, the Republicans are over in Hungary learning from Viktor Orban how to run a country. Viktor Orban, the guy who has turned the entire media, the entire country, basically uh, pretty much all of it, over to his uh, billionaire cronies. The guy who has packed his court system with absolute toadies. The guy who has gerrymandered and voters suppressed the electorate to the point that pretty much any election he runs in, he's going to win. And guess what? They just, they just blocked reporters from the Associated Press, from the New Yorker, from Vox Media, from Rolling Stone, from Vice News. They've just, they're now saying no American media can come in here. Right. And then Orban gets up and gives a speech in which he says that uh, 2024 is what we all need to be looking at. Now, keep in mind, this is the dictator of a foreign country telling Republicans that in 2024, they need to turn America into a dictatorship, just like Hungary. And they're all applauding him. Oh, yeah, yeah, Viktor Orban, he's our hero. Tucker Carlson went over and spent a whole week with him. Gave him a foot bath on live television. Well, not quite, but you get the point. This is what Orban said when he said, progressive liberals, neo-Marxist, dazed by the woke dream people financed by George Soros and promoters of open societies want to annihilate the Western way of life that you and I love so much. The Western way of life. I think he's talking about white people being in charge. That's been his big thing. He doesn't want any Jews in charge in Hungary. His main thing is George Soros, which is, you know, just kind of generic international Jewish person. He said, we must coordinate the movement of our troops as we face a big test. 2024 will be a decisive year because, you see, if Orban and Putin can help the Republicans destroy democracy in the United States in 2024, the pressure's off them. Right now, we're the example to the world of how a functioning democracy can function. I mean, we're not necessarily the world's best example, but... Anyhow, Orban laid out 12 points that the Republicans need to do, and one of them was to seize control of the media. He said, quote, we must reconquer the institutions in Washington, D.C., and Brussels. He wants to take the EU, too. All on behalf of his good friend Vlad, I'm sure. We'll be right back. Welcome back. On the line with us is our old buddy Kevin Camps from uh, Beyond Nuclear. He's the radioactive waste specialist there, beyondnuclear.org, of course, the website, and Beyond Nuclear, the Twitter handle. And uh, Kevin, we've, we've been talking for years about, you know, the impact, the consequences, the process of uh, the, the whole Fukushima meltdown and then the, 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 the pollution of the Pacific Ocean. Um, I understand there's some new news on this front. Well, the Japanese government and Tokyo Electric Power Company, the culprits in the Fukushima nuclear catastrophe, have yet again said they mean it. They're going to dump, the figure is 1.5 million metric tons of highly radioactive wastewater into the ocean. 
So that converts to about 400 million gallons of highly radioactive wastewater. The tritium, radioactive hydrogen concentration in that wastewater, is astronomical off the charts. They can't filter it out. And there's even other radioactive poisons in there, cesium, strontium, cobalt. It has been filtered to try to get rid of those other radioactive poisons, but they can't get it all. And so they're, they're depending on this dilution in the ocean. But as my mentors, Dr. Ro- Rosalie Bertel, uh, put it, dilution is not the solution to radioactive pollution. Michael Keegan with Don't Waste Michigan, dilute, dilution is a delusion. What about the reconcentration in the food chain? That's what's going to happen with the tritium. It's going to reconcentrate, bioaccumulate up the food chain. So explain to our listeners uh, what, what tritium is what, and what bioaccumulation is and why these things may be of concern to Americans. Tritium is uh, artificially generated radioactive hydrogen. It comes from the nuclear reaction, and it is in this wastewater at astronomical concentrations. And it can go anywhere in the human body that hydrogen can go, which is everywhere in the human body, right down to the DNA molecule in every cell, tissue, and organ. And if it lodges in there, if you eat a radioactive fish that has radioactive hydrogen, tritium, in its flesh, you could incorporate it into your body, and it can do tremendous damage when it's in intimate contact with things like DNA molecules. And so I have spoken to a growing number of people who just in their personal lives have said, I've stopped eating seafood from the Pacific Ocean from what they know about the Fukushima catastrophe already. Well, here's the next shoe to drop, intentionally dumping 400 million gallons of tritiated radioactive wastewater into the ocean. They don't need to do it. Why, uh, what's their alternative? They could simply store the wastewater for as long as tritium remains hazardous. Tritium's half-life is 12.3 years. You multiply by 10, 123 years, the tritium will have radioactively decayed and will be stable and won't be a hazard anymore. And the only reason they're doing this is because it's simple, it's easy, and it's the tragedy of the commons. The oceans are the public's problem, not Tokyo Electric's, not the Japanese government's, but other governments are rising up in protest. South Korea, uh, China, Taiwan, Russia, and one would hope the United States, but unfortunately, whether under Trump or Biden um, and Obama before that, it seems the U.S. is complicit in these bad ideas. Right, because the nuclear industry has so much power in this country and because the Supreme Court has said that industries can own politicians. Isn't that sweet? Um, So uh, are they continuing to produce tritium-contaminated water, or is this stuff, you know, kind of left over from from the disaster? And and I'm assuming the one thing you didn't mention in terms of why they're doing this was cost. I I would assume that storing that water is more expensive than dumping it. You got it. Yeah, it's to save them money. And no, there's no more tritium being generated. It's uh, Tritium is generated in operating reactors, and that ended in March of 2011 mm-hmm. when they exploded and melted down. But there's plenty of tritium in the wreckage of these reactors. And as they pour hundreds of tons of cooling water into these reactors on a daily basis to try to keep them cool, it picks up that tritium contamination. And then and, and, and puts it into the wastewater. Uh, it, what, which has been stored, yeah. Right, which is, which is being stored uh, so far. When are they anticipating doing this? They said um, they will make the final decision uh, in July, and then they will begin doing this next year. But the Japanese Federation of Fishing Cooperatives, the anti-nuclear movement of Japan, and the anti-nuclear movement of other countries, like in Taiwan, are saying, no, you don't. So the fight is still on. Fascinating, fascinating. What is the what is the state of the Fukushima reactors right now? Where 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 are we at with all these? It is still an ongoing catastrophe. Um, you still have other flows of radioactive water into the ocean on a daily basis because they're not capturing everything. They built Fukushima in essentially a riverbed, and so that underground water flow continues, picks up contamination, and some of it flows into the ocean. They're very slowly still trying to figure out where the melted cores are. They've found maybe one of them, maybe two of them, but there are three of them, so they don't exactly know where all of the melted core is at. 
how deep into the earth it melted, is it sitting in groundwater, which would worsen that flow into the ocean. And they're, you know, planning to take decades or longer before they dismantle these facilities. And so it's, it's going to be a very long-term decommissioning project. What has this done to TEPCO, the company that owned these reactors, and what has it done to nuclear power in Japan in general? I, I, I recall a conversation we had a few years ago that they were, you know, radically scaling back their use of nuclear power. Has that, have they bounced back from that? Have they gone back to nuclear power? What, where is Japan at right now? Or, or is there a huge push for renewables? Or are they going back to fossil fuels? What's happening there? Mm -hmm. Well, Tokyo Electric has been largely exonerated by the Japanese government and not really been held to account. There have been a handful of Tokyo Electric executives who faced some legal jeopardy through the tremendous hard work and sacrifice of the victims and survivors of the catastrophe who mm -hmm. spent years in court trying to get justice. The Japanese uh, ruling party has been pro-nuclear since the 1950s, and they still are, despite what happened at Fukushima. But the Japanese people, um, their, their eyes are open now, and they've joined the anti-nuclear movement for the most part. So of 55 reactors operating on March 10, 2011, at this point there are perhaps 10 or a dozen operating. Mm. All the rest have been stopped by the Japanese public, um, and their elected representatives said you're not restarting these reactors. That fight continues on as well. There is a tremendous effort to try to expand renewables, and even some members of the ruling party, um, even popular past prime ministers, have joined that movement. The, um, the opposition party is way behind renewables, so there's tremendous hope that Japan will switch to renewables. They have tremendous resources to do so. Yeah, I, I, would, I, I would think. And, and finally, Kevin, how many Fukushima-style reactors uh, that are just as vulnerable to, to melting down as what happened at Fukushima, how many of those are in the United States? Well, um, there were at the most three dozen, and we're slowly shutting them down. So, you know, Vermont Yankee in 2014 was a very tremendous grassroots victory, but we still have around 30 of these Fukushima twin designs or similar designs here in the United States. The biggest in the world is Fermi Unit 2 in Monroe County, Michigan, immediately next door to Fermi Unit 1 that had a meltdown in 1966. So mm. even karmically, uh, that's one to worry about. Wow, wow. Uh, amazing times we live in here. Kevin Camps with beyondnuclear.org. Kevin, thanks a lot for dropping by today. Thank you for having me, Tom. I do appreciate the update. We'll be right back with more of the news of the day and your call. Well, specifically your calls, <laughs> any of the stuff that we've been talking about. You know, what do you think is going to happen with the economy? How are you watching politics play out? What are your thoughts on the word populist? Are Republicans starting to see through the perpetual lies? Elaine in Quebec, Canada. Hey, Elaine, what's up? Okay, I'd like to talk to you about something that I've noticed. It's about your rant about the uh, the fascist movement in the United States and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I've noticed, because I have a lot of books and a lot of uh, science fiction history, and I've noticed that at this moment, it looks like the United States has crossroads between a republic and an empire. Mm -hmm. And for that, I base myself on what happened with the Roman Empire, which, by the way, if looks like was the inspiration for the United States at the, be at the beginning. In and part, yes, right in now, large part, yes. And what I see right now is the condition to make the, 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 the transfer. Mm -hmm. And for that, I base myself on a book. I didn't have time to read, but uh, the, the back of the book, it's a... Uh, the Evolution of Civilization by uh, Carol uh, Quigley. Mm -hmm. On the back, it says, Quigley defined a civilization as producing, uh, producing society with an instrument of expansion. A civilization decline is not inevitable, but occurs when its instrument of expansion is transformed into institution, that is, the transformation of social arrangement that meet the real social needs into social institutions serving their own purpose, regardless of the real social needs. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's also a book called Mortal Republic about the, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire, and, you know, with a heavy emphasis on the fall. 
and uh, forgive me for uh, forgetting the name of the author, but uh, he's been on the program, in fact. And his point was, again, you look at when the Roman emperors began putting their own, their own wealth, their own power, and that of their friends and cronies above the, the, the health and safety and needs of the republic itself, that was the beginning of the end of the Roman Empire. And, and, and that end lasted for several hundred years, but as it continued to degenerate. But I think your, your point is, is well made, Elaine. Yeah, because right now I see that it, you are at the crossroad. Yeah. And my guess is, depending on which way it's going to go, you're still at the point where you can choose. But at some point of time, you won't be able to choose. It's going to be like in, uh, like the evolution of a star in astronomy. You know, when the sun will exhaust its hydrogen, mm -hmm. the core will contract and the outer layer will expand. Well, this is what's going to happen with the United States. The core, which is the polit political base, will contract into the hands of very, very, very few people. And the... The territory and influence will expand to include a lot of things, probably Canada and England and stuff like that. It's a natural evolution, I guess. Yeah. I, th I, I think your analysis may be right, and uh, it troubles and concerns me considerably. I'm just hopeful that you know you y'all in Canada can hang on to things, so that those of us in the United States who may uh, need a place of refuge can, can come and visit. Elaine, thank you so much for the call. Uh, it's great to hear from you. Our book today is Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny by Edward J. Watts. This is from the first chapter, which I think is really more like an introduction. This book explains why Rome, still one of the longest lived republics in world history, traded the liberty of political autonomy for the security of autocracy. It's written at a moment when modern readers need to be particularly aware of both the nature of the republics and the consequences of their failure. We live in a time of political crisis when the structures of republics as diverse as the United States, Venezuela, France, and Turkey are threatened. Many of these republics are the constitutional descendants of Rome, and as such, they have inherited both the tremendous structural strengths that allowed the Roman Republic to thrive for so long, and some of the same structural weaknesses that led eventually to its demise. This is particularly true of the United States, a nation whose basic constitutional structure was deliberately patterned on the idealized view of the Roman Republic presented by the second century BC author Polybius. This conscious borrowing from Rome's model makes it vital for all of us to understand how Rome's Republic worked, what it achieved, and why, after nearly five centuries, its citizens ultimately turned away from it and toward the autocracy of Augustus. No republic is eternal. It lives only as long as its citizens want it. And in both the 21st century AD and the first century BC, when a republic fails to work as intended, its citizens are capable of choosing the stability of autocratic rule over the chaos of a broken republic. When freedom leads to disorder and autocracy promises a functional and responsive government, even citizens of an established republic can become willing to set aside long-standing principled objections to the rule of one man and embrace its practical benefits. Rome offers a lesson about how citizens and leaders of a republic might avoid forcing their fellow citizens to make such a tortured choice. Rome shows that the basic, most important function of a republic is to create a political space that is governed by laws, fosters compromise, shares government responsibility among a group of representatives, and rewards good stewardship. Politics in such a republic should not be a zero-sum game. The politician who wins a political struggle may be honored, but one who loses should not be punished. The Roman Republic did not encourage its leaders to seek complete and total political victory. It was not designed to force one side to accept everything the other wanted. Instead, it offered tools that, like the American filibuster, served to keep the process of political negotiation going until a mutually agreeable compromise was found. This process worked very well in Rome for centuries, but it worked only because most Roman politicians accepted the laws and norms of the Roman Republic. They committed to working out their disputes in the political arena that the Republic established rather than through violence in the streets. Republican Rome succeeded in this more than perhaps any other state before or since. If the early and middle centuries of Rome's Republic show how effective this system can be, the last century of the Roman Republic reveals the tremendous dangers that result 
when political leaders cynically misuse their consensus, these consensus building mechanisms to obstruct a republic's functions. Like politicians in modern republics, Romans could use vetoes to block votes on laws. They could claim the presence of unfavorable religious conditions to annul votes they disliked. And they could deploy other parliamentary tools to slow down or shut down the political process if it seemed to be moving too quickly toward an outcome that they disliked. When used as intended, these tools help promote negotiations and political compromises by preventing majorities from imposing solutions on minorities. But in Rome, as in our world, politicians could also employ such devices to prevent the Republic from doing what its citizens needed. The widespread misuse of these tools offered the first signs of sickness in Rome's Republic. Much more serious threats to Republics appear when arguments between politicians spill out from the controlled environments of representative assemblies and degenerate into violent con confrontations between ordinary people in the streets. Romans had avoided political violence for three centuries before a series of political murders rocked the Republic in the 130s and 120s BC. Once mob violence infected Roman politics, however, the institutions of the Republic quickly lost their ability to control the contexts and content of political disputes. Within a generation of the first political assassination in Rome, politicians had begun to arm their supporters and use the threat of violence to influence the votes of assemblies and the elections of magistrates. Within two generations, Rome fell into civil war. And two generations later, Augustus ruled as Roman emperor. When the Republic lost the ability to regulate the rewards given to political victors and the punishments inflicted on the losers of political conflicts, Roman politics became a zero-sum game in which the winner reaped massive rewards and the losers often paid with their lives. Above all else, the Roman Republic teaches the citizens of its modern descendants the incredible dangers that come along with condoning political obstruction and courting political violence. Roman history could not more clearly show that when citizens look away as their leaders engage in these corrosive behaviors, the Republic is in mortal danger. Unpunished political dysfunction prevents consensus and encourages violence. In Rome, it eventually led Romans to trade the Republic for the security of an autocracy. This is how a Republic dies, mortal Republic. Okay, picking up your phone calls here, uh, is it a good thing or a bad thing if we discover there are UFOs or there are actually uh, extraterrestrial intelligence floating around in our skies? Dave in Federal Washington, you have an opinion on this? Yeah, hey, Tom, I've put a lot of thought behind this over the years. And as an atheist, I see uh, religion a little bit different, and I'll tell you why that's relevant. Right now in America, you specifically said how would America react. Yep. There is a tendency towards anti-intellectualism. And what I mean by that, Elon Musk is a good example. He's obviously very intellectual. But if you look at why he was buying, uh, wanted to buy Twitter, he expressed an anti-intellectual. So what does this have to do with UFOs, Dave? Yeah, yeah. Let me tell you. Now, I think that we very bad, almost cataclysmic. And if you also look at all the religions of our, of our world, from animism to liberal Protestantism, they have one thing in common. Ethics, it's an ethical structure that's in accordance with this, the chemistry of this earth. All right. No planet. We've discovered no planet with anything even remotely close to the chemical structure of our troposphere. So that means their morality would logically be completely different. Right? Hence the word alien. Right now, it, there is one reason, though, I could see aliens would intervene. And it would be to stop a nuclear holocaust. All right. And, and the reason why there's a line in a movie called The Day the Earth Stood Still, where he reveals, the alien reveals he is here to save the Earth from humanity. Not save the Earth, but save it from humanity. And she's shocked by that. And he says there's only a handful of planets throughout the galaxy that can support intelligent life. And we cannot let this one die for the sake of one species. He says, if the Earth lives, humanity lives. If humanity dies, the Earth lives. It's yeah. a simple Boolean logic. Okay. All right. I got it. I got it, Dave. Yep. I got it. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Thank you for your opinion. Sarah in uh, San Rafael, California. Hey, Sarah, what's on your mind today? 
Hey, good morning, Professor. Well, you just hit into my wheelhouse, UFOs. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm, I'm about a year older than you are. I've been immersed in the subject for all this period of time. I'm a MUFON member. And, you know, Congress and finally getting some official investigations, although they've been going on for a long period of time, as we found out. A lot of it thanks to Harry Reid, our favorite senator. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think people need to get some idea because... This subject is so much deeper than the nuts and bolts stuff that I think is just basically going to try and come out. There's like so many implications. And, you know, God forbid that, you know, revelations come out, you know, you look at hybridization, abductions, you know, portals, all this stuff that seems to be involved with it when you really get into the subject. That if people have no concept of even just accepting possible extraterrestrial life, um, I think they'd be really shocked. There's a series on History Channel called Secret of the Skinwalker Ranch, which, if you've never seen it, you really should. It's It really makes you question reality. Yeah, I, I mean, um, I, I remember back in the, I think it was the 70s, really, reading uh, Eric Von Donegat's Charity of the Gods, and that made me a believer. I was like, whoa, you know, this, this can't just be some archetype that's burned in our DNA. I mean, this, this has got to be people recording actual memories of actual encounters, close encounters of a third kind. So what do you think, well, Sarah? That. Go ahead. Okay, go ahead. I was going to say, not only that, you look at ancient aliens, some of the stuff that's come out since then. I mean, I've been Donican, you know, Nazca Plains and all that stuff. And then you see this thing called Puma Punco in Bolivia with these giant blocks, which has like these cuts and, you know, the stone that was like from miles away. And they're so straight that we can even duplicate them today. I mean, it's just like so overwhelming, you know, but, um, you know, and, and I have to thank you. Uh, one of the things on your book club one time I heard was uh, uh, something that happened to me, but you were reading from Warrior Is. And about how I believe mm-hmm. the Codans there believed in the Palladians, that they came from the Pleiades. And then uh, synchronicity, like two weeks later, I'm listening to this podcast. I listened to it. This Australian UFO researcher talking about the Aborigines. Guess where the Aborigines is? They come from the Palladians, too. Oh, interesting. I mean, like, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So what do you, so Sarah, if, if uh, you know, if a flying saucer landed in Washington, D.C. and a little green man came out and said, uh, you know, uh, hey, we'd like to hang out, uh, let's talk, how do you think that America would respond? Would we, would we nuke him or would we say, cool, let's have a conversation? Seems to me like it might be instantly politicized. <laughs> you know? Oh my God, it's aliens. We have laws against aliens. <laughs> Well, and especially the religious zealots. I mean, right oh, away, yeah. they'd be out there. They'd send some of their snipers out there to shoot them because they're the demons. You know, I mean, that, that's how it is. And, you know, I don't necessarily think all of them are good either. But, you know, if they wanted to wipe us out, we wouldn't be here. You know, um, there so, is that. Uh, yeah, I think I treat them nicely at first, and I might not believe them all. And actually, um, there's this gentleman, uh, Luis Alexander, who came from the program ATIP that Harry Reid had gotten in there for investigations. Mm-hmm. And what he was saying, there are higher ups in the government that do believe that these are demons, these whatever, you know, this phenomenon. Oh, and that's that's why they didn't want I'm, to I'm more inclined to think that our experience of a an encounter with an alien uh, race that is sufficiently advanced to do interstellar travel would be not unlike the Taino people in in uh, Haiti uh, in in their first encounter with Christopher Columbus. I, I, I'm, I, I'm 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 a little concerned, Sarah. I got to run. Thank you for the call. Our geeky science for the day, as it were, a new study published Tuesday in the Environmental Research Letters. Uh, that is the title of the journal says that not only do we need to stop looking for new sources of fossil fuels, but that as much as 40% of fossil fuel reserves that are currently being uh, developed, that are currently in the process of being extracted or are being extracted, are in the process of being prepared, would have to stay in the ground if we're going to have a 50-50 chance of stabilizing at 1.5 degrees Celsius. They note some of the largest fossil fuel companies in the world are planning or already operating more than 190 carbon bombs, huge oil and gas projects that could unleash nearly 650 billion tons of CO2 emissions and doom efforts to avert climate catastrophe. These companies are out of control. It's amazing. Okay, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Raymond in Jordan City, California. Hey, Raymond, what's on your mind? Um, Two things. One, one thing I hear no one talking about. We talk, we hear all this stuff about mistrust and people not trusting in our government institutions and, and agencies. Um, and one aspect of this that uh, isn't being talked about is how capitalism affects that. 
how the tenets of capitalism, you know, greed, individualism, profit over everything, leads people to distrust these agencies. Like, for instance, you know, Fauci, people are saying, you know, don't believe him, he's corrupt or whatever. You know, and, and so this is an angle that I think people aren't really thinking about. And secondly, I live in Trinity County, California, and two weeks ago while I was protesting what's going on with the Supreme Court and the right-wing turn of many states in this country, I was carrying a sign that said, Stop Christian Theocracy and Stop Christian Fascism. And on two separate occasions within two hours of each other, I was physically attacked by two people, supposed Christians. And I had an epiphany at this time. I realized that Christianity is incompatible with democracy. Because if you take Christianity to the extent to which true believers want to take it, that means everyone in the world but them is wrong, everyone in the world but them is going to hell, everyone in the world but them deserves God's righteous judgment. So, I mean, I think that's something, and I'm not saying Christianity should be outlawed or people shouldn't have the right to think what they want or believe or have the faith they want. It's just, it's incompatible with democracy. At least as it is practiced today by many conservatives. If you go back and read you know, specifically the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew 25, you'll find a whole different story. Thanks a lot for the call. Hey, special thanks to Louise Hartman, Sean Taylor, Nate Atwell, Jamie Holly, Joyce the Hammer, Nance, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercutt, Patrick White, Gerilyn Halber, Ron Hartenbaum, Chase Spross, Nicholas Miller, Pat Sweeney, Jay LeBlanc, Al Gorilla Rhythm, Connor Arroyo, and Carna Verity, all the folks who helped make this program work. And thank you to you for being with us this week. We'll be back on Monday. Be good to yourself and the people around you. Stay safe. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.